Our sermon text this morning is from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts. Pierce us to the core. Make us ready to hear and receive your word and to run into your merciful arms all over again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the violence and injustice of the world are painfully obvious for all to see, aren't they? It seems as if every day there's another mass shooting, as if every week there's a fresh outbreak of war. Now, it may not be the case that the world is more violent than ever before, but it is the case that new technologies have made it possible to brutalize ever-increasing numbers of people with ever-increasing efficiency. And new technologies also give us a front-row seat to watch the violence unfold in real time. In prior generations, you had to work really hard to stay attuned to all the injustices plaguing the world. But now, you have to intentionally limit your access to information so that every atrocity in every corner of the globe isn't constantly bearing down on your soul. Now, our modern society is profoundly aware of the injustice and violence of the world. But ironically, the dominant beliefs of modern society leave us without the deep resources to truly deal with violence. What do I mean? Broadly speaking, our society turns on the assumptions that there is no God, this life is all we have, and the individual reigns supreme. But friends, those commitments undercut our capacity to robustly confront the violence that's all around us. You see, if there's no God, then there's no such thing as truly objective morality. There's no real right and wrong. There's no authentic good and evil. And that means that you don't have any solid basis for critiquing the violence that you see. Without God you inevitably end up with a vision of the world that sounds an awful lot like Lord Voldemort's. There is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak 
to seek it. Violence isn't actually wrong. Violence is just the price the weak have to pay as the strong exercise and maximize their power in the world. You may not like violence, but in a universe without God, you have no grounds for objecting to violence. You have no grounds for saying that it's truly wrong. There is no good and evil. There's only power. Now, at the same time, if there's no God, then there's no real purpose for history either. There's no author of the story that we're living, no real goal that everything is moving toward. And that means that you don't have any solid basis for hope in the face of violence. Authentic hope, remember, is more than sheer optimism. Authentic hope is confidence. Confidence in a good future that's grounded in the security of a promise. But if there's no God who's at work, even through our pain, if there's no God who promises to intervene in justice, to turn violence upside down, then we're all alone at the mercy of a violent world. We're looking into an unpredictable future that can't sustain us in hope because there's no guarantee that anything will ever really get better. And ultimately, if you've got no moral basis for critiquing violence and no confident basis for hoping in the face of violence, it can get very easy to get worn down by the violence so that you stop resisting it. You begin to give in to it. You try to beat the violence by becoming a participant in violence yourself. Unlike the dominant beliefs of modern society, however, Christianity offers profound and coherent resources for confronting violence. The cosmic story the Bible tells us about God, us, and everything gives us deep resources to understand violence, to critique it, to hope in the midst of it, to detect it in ourselves and not just in others, and to resist its allure and its gravitational pull so that we can become and endure as witnesses of peace who embody and call the world to a better way. So as we explore the first verses of Jonah chapter 3 today, we're going to consider three things. The sacrifice of violence, the overthrow of violence, and the exposure of violence. The sacrifice, the overthrow, and the exposure. We're going to start with the sacrifice of violence. Jonah is sent to Nineveh to announce that God's judgment is coming because of their violence and injustice. But the Bible describes their violence in a very interesting way. Back in verse 2 of chapter 1, all the way at the beginning, God told Jonah to go and call out against Nineveh because their wickedness, their evil, quote, has come up before me. Their unjust violence has literally ascended to God. Now that's a curious way to phrase it. Because in the Old Testament, the chief thing that ascends to God is what? It's sacrifice. 
In Israel, worship involved offering a gift to the Lord in the fire of the altar. And as it turned into smoke, it would rise, it would ascend into the presence of God. The sacrifice of worship ascends to God, and Nineveh's violence ascends to God too. Why? Because violence is a form of religious sacrifice too. Unjust violence is the sacrifice of false worship that human beings offer to their idols. Now that may sound initially odd to us, but in the ancient world, every aspect of society was explicitly religious. They understood that the shape of public life is always governed by whatever gods we happen to worship. The Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital city, had a reputation for brutality that was fueled by all of their cultural gods. They invaded territories through bloody, zealous military expansion, committing horrific war crimes all along the way, and they were endorsed by their national deity, who was a god of war and empire. A God who supported their slaughter and domination. A God who offered his special protection along their bloody way. Historical records indicate that they practiced human sacrifice and would even offer their children in fire to the gods. In their legal system, parents who broke legal contracts could even be punished by having to offer their children to the deities. Temples required male and female cult prostitutes, some of whom were sold into their so-called sacred service in order to pay off their family debts. So worship literally would involve using the bodies of the vulnerable for the pleasure of the more powerful. And more generally, the values that ran through this violent society would align with the character traits demonstrated and glorified by their gods. And as you may know, pagan pantheons are not known for their virtuous behavior. Assyria's violence was predicated upon their idolatrous worship. It ascended like a false sacrifice into the presence of God. And friends, though millennia may have passed, our society is fundamentally the same. Modern culture isn't explicitly religious, but our society is still shaped and fueled by ultimate commitments, religious commitments, idols that we worship and pursue and depend upon in order to feel whole. And even though we may do a far better job of hiding it outside, just outside of plain view, our modern violence, the violence that we tolerate and the violence that we commit is the sacrifice of blood demanded by our idols, by our supreme cultural commitments. So, for example, Western societies are increasingly streamlining and expanding euthanasia programs so that the elderly, the ill, the disabled, and the poor, even the poor, 
can elect to end their lives and not be an unproductive burden to the economy. Euthanasia is the violent sacrifice that the idol of economic prosperity requires. Why? Because you just can't afford to keep on pouring resources into people who aren't contributing to the bottom line. Elective abortion and the systematic elimination of children with special needs in the womb is a modern form of child sacrifice, every bit as brutal as Assyria's. It is a modern form of child sacrifice on the altars of individual autonomy, personal convenience, financial security, and professional mobility. We give up our children to the gods too. The pornography industry that traps the vulnerable and is propped up by human trafficking is the violent and exploitative offering of bodies in sacred service, just like the temple prostitutes in Nineveh. It's an offering of bodies in worship of the idols of physical pleasure and sexual gratification. Ethnic violence and racially motivated hatred are the sacrifices demanded by the idols of cultural and ethnic supremacy. Political violence is the blood offering required by our nearly religious partisan allegiances, unjust war, and military expansion leaves a trail of innocent bodies in its wake, and those are just the human cost of nationalistic idolatry and the insatiable hunger for resources and power. And just like in Nineveh, the violence of the modern world ascends like a foul sacrifice because violence is always a sacrifice. Violence is always a sacrifice, a bloody offering to our idols of choice. It's the dehumanization of others that our false worship always demands. Violence is always a twisted act of worship. It's always animated by idolatry, the pursuit of some created thing as ultimate. But the relationship works the other way too. We need to see that. Violence is always idolatrous, but at the same time, every form of idolatry always tends toward violence. Why? Because when you set your heart on something as your fundamental hope for joy, meaning, wholeness, and satisfaction, whether it be money, sex, approval, comfort, power, beauty, control, or safety, when you convince yourself that you can't live without that one thing, you will do whatever it takes to acquire it and protect it. You'll use people to get what you're really after, and you'll destroy and dehumanize anyone who stands in your way and chalk it up to acceptable collateral damage. Other people will become the necessary sacrifice that your God requires of you. If you worship your physical beauty, you will always be threatened by other beautiful people. You'll hate them in your heart, and you'll use your biting words, your sarcasm, your looks out of the corner of your eye, and everything else in your power to diminish how other people view them. You will take them down. If you make approval your idol, you'll live your whole life manipulating people, to control their opinion of you. And the moment you fear that someone might actually disapprove, 
You'll lash out against them in wrath, or you'll cut them out of your life completely. They will be expendable, acceptable collateral damage. You may not exercise physical violence. You'll probably find more socially acceptable ways of commodifying, walking on, and discarding people for your purposes. But you need to recognize that the same dynamics that do lead to physical violence are propelling your heart too. They live inside of each of us. The seeds of violence are already planted in every idolatrous human heart. That's a sacrifice of violence. But second, we need to consider the overthrow of violence. Violence is the sacrifice that individuals and whole societies render up in worshipful pursuit of their manufactured gods. The book of Jonah shows us that our unjust predation against one another is a false, noxious, tragic, wicked offering that ascends up into the presence of God. And it also shows us that God is going to do something about it. God sends Jonah to a city that's drowning in violence to declare a message of judgment and justice. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One of the fundamental claims of the Bible is that the God who made the world loves the world. And in love, he is going to rid his world of every form of evil, injustice, and sinful violence that desecrates his creation, destroys his creatures, and impedes the perfect eternal joy of his people. He promises over and over again that he's going to deal with all the wrongs of the world. He's going to exercise perfect justice against Wickedness, and he's going to renew the whole cosmos into a garden city of eternal delight. What is that in the Bible? That's a temple. He's going to make the universe a temple where his people live in the presence of his soul-satisfying glory and experience the fullness and joy that they were made for forever and ever. The secular humanism that dominates the modern imagination has no resource for true hope. But if you know that God promises that one day he's going to overthrow all the violence of the world, right every wrong with justice, vindicate the innocent with shouts from the rooftop, and resurrect a world of joy and peace, then do you know what you have? You have a hope. You have a hope that can empower your endurance and propel your peaceful resistance to the ways of violence, even through your darkest bloodstained days. The Bible promises that the God of love is going to finally overthrow violence with justice. And the Bible also tells us that sometimes when the sacrifice of violence ascends, when it rises all the way to heaven, God's justice breaks into history. Sometimes the Lord who is sovereign over all human history brings down people and cities. He brings down armies and empires in just judgment to interrupt their destructive addiction 
to bloodshed so that they can't decimate his beloved creation for one second longer. And that's the message that Jonah seems to be bringing to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But there's a really important ambiguity in the Lord's declaration. Because the key word in that sentence, Nineveh shall be overthrown, can mean that the city will be overturned in judgment, destroyed, wiped away. But it can also mean that Nineveh will be turned over, changed, transformed. You see, there are two ways that God works to overthrow violence. He can overthrow the violent by overturning them in his perfect and definitive judgment, but he can also overthrow the violent by turning them over in repentance, jarring them out of their downward spiral, transforming them in mercy and in grace. Both of those means of overthrowing, overturning the wicked and turning over the wicked, are ways that God confronts violence and brings justice in his world. And something incredible happens when Nineveh hears Jonah's words. The Bible says they believe God and repent of their violence. And later on in the book, we're told that God relents of the judgment he had announced. Now, we need to consider very carefully what's going on here. We might immediately assume that Jonah's prophecy didn't come to pass because God relented, but that's not quite right. God did overthrow Nineveh, didn't he? He just overthrew them with a repentant revolution of justice rather than the justice of divine judgment. But God did overthrow Nineveh. In God's mercy... He used the seemingly harsh warning of coming judgment to stir their repentance so that he could gladly turn his impending judgment away. And this shows us something about God's heart when he warns the world. It shows us something about God's heart when he tells the world about the judgment that is coming against idolatry and violence. You see, if God wanted to simply wipe Nineveh off the map. If he wanted to simply destroy Nineveh, he could have done it at any time. He didn't have to tell a single soul what he was planning to do. If he wanted to wipe them away, he he could have well done it. But that's not what he did, is it? Instead, he sent a prophet hundreds of miles To give them the warning. And even in the warning, he announced that his judgment wouldn't fall until 40 whole days had passed. 40 days when Nineveh could respond to his message. In Jeremiah 18, God explains through that prophet what he's up to when he's doing that. He says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up or break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. 
Now, what does that show us? It shows us that God's warnings of judgment are always simultaneously invitations to repentance. The warning is always also an invitation. He doesn't warn about the coming judgment simply to pass along information so that you can mark it down in your calendar and plan for the judgment ahead of time. He's doing something far deeper. God warns about the coming judgment so that people whose lives are committed to violence can respond before the time comes. Forsake their idolatrous violence, turn to him in repentance, and be turned over in mercy without being overturned in the judgment. Though it may come as a surprise to us, in the Bible, God's warnings of judgment are themselves an exercise of divine mercy. They are a gracious wake-up call going out to a blood-stained world that have the power to prompt transformation and God delights to overthrow our violence in mercy. But how can he do that? How can he show mercy to people like us who've given our hearts to idols and contributed to the violence of the world? God can show mercy to people who deserve judgment because Jesus received the judgment our violence deserved. The book of Jonah says that our violence ascends like a wicked sacrifice into God's presence. But Jesus lived a perfect life. He worshiped God with a whole heart and treated others with unyielding dignity, and he offered himself as a sacrifice. A sacrifice in the place of sinners like you and me. And after he was raised from the dead, the Bible uses a very particular term. Jesus ascended into heaven. Rising up to God as an offering. So that his beautiful sacrifice could stand in the place of our sacrifices of violence. The violence isn't the only thing that ascends to the Lord. Jesus ascends to the Lord. God will overthrow violence one way or another. Those who cling with white knuckles to their violent idols will be overturned. The Bible promises that they will be overturned when God makes his world a comprehensive home of love and peace. But those who run to Jesus for mercy, those who hear the word of the Lord and run to him in repentance will find themselves turned over in his mercy. Jesus' beautiful sacrifice will cover the sacrifice of their violence. And they'll even begin to find that their heart's deepest desires are met in him. And when that happens, when you discover that the deep longings of your heart have been abundantly met in Jesus, what begins to take place? The idols begin to lose their allure. 
The compulsion to fight and scrape and dehumanize begins to fade. And you can begin to live in a kind of security in Jesus that enables you to be an agent of love and peace and justice in God's world, not a perpetual agent of your idolatrous violence. Now, interestingly, historians note something intriguing about Assyria during this time. Right about the time when Jonah was preaching, Assyria was experiencing profound instability in the empire. What had happened? Their wars had left them bruised. Riots were breaking out through the empire. And people, the society, was they were living in the tangible social consequences of their culture of violence. And some suggest that Nineveh may have been especially open to repentance when Jonah preached precisely because they were already intimately experiencing the disintegrating effects of their own violence. In God's world, hear this, in God's world, sin is always self-consuming. And one of the ways God judges sin before the final judgment is by letting us experience the effects of our sin in our lives. When we give ourselves to idols, and when we have to claw tooth and nail against the world to get, keep, and protect the little gods that give us meaning, what happens? Our life begins to unravel, doesn't it? We feel the internal tension, and the effects in our relationships, when the very things we think we need the most seem like they're ruining us. Those, friends, are the early, uneasy tremors that God gives in our lives to snap us out of our stupor and make us hungry for something better. If you are here today, exhausted by what feels like a never-ending battle that is unwinding your soul, perhaps you're just like Nineveh. Perhaps you're experiencing the disintegration that your, your idols, your ways of living and loving naturally provoke in human life. Perhaps you're in the perfect position to lay down your fighting and run to the God who loves to overthrow violent people in mercy. That brings us to number three, the exposure of violence. Now, for, for all that we've been talking about Nineveh, perhaps unexpectedly, the book of Jonah is not primarily about Nineveh's violence. What's it really about? It's about Jonah's violence. You see, the whole book is about Jonah's resistance against his call to preach to Nineveh. And as the end of the book makes clear, the reason he runs from his call is because he hates these people. He hates Nineveh. He doesn't want to preach to them because he doesn't want them to even have the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord and repent and receive mercy. He'd rather disobey God, get tossed in the sea, and risk his very life than help them. He wants them to meet the judgment of God. 
Nineveh's soil may be soaked in blood, but Jonah's heart is saturated with its own kind of violence too. And one of the things this book intends to show us is that just like Nineveh, Jonah's violence, his absolute hatred of others, is an idolatrous sacrifice. He may not be a pagan offering blood on the altar to the gods. He may not be a modern like you and me, fighting to attain some irreligious idol. But Jonah's ultimate commitment is just like the pagans and the moderns, an idol of his own making. And what is it? Jonah's idol is his religious goodness. Jonah's idol is his moral superiority. Jonah knows that Nineveh is Israel's enemy. They're guilty of all sorts of atrocities. They don't obey God's laws. They're not God's special covenant people. In fact, they're a threat to the Israelite nation of whom Jonah is a proud member. Why does Jonah want Nineveh to burn? Because they're not one of the good guys like me. We're God's people. They're pagans. We have the commandments. They commit violence. We deserve good things from God. They deserve to perish. Jonah is so good in his own eyes that he's become a monster. Do you see that? He's so good in his own estimation of himself that he has become wicked. He's become a monster. Our idols always tend toward violence. We've seen that already. But we can make our moral goodness and our religious identity an idol too. And those respectable idols can create hearts that are absolutely teeming with a pride that looks down on everybody who's not like you. A heart that regards them with utter resentment and contempt. A heart that hates any possibility of blessing that they might experience. A heart that positively longs for them to get what they deserve. What is that? It's the hidden violence of a religious heart. Jonah's religious form of idolatry, his moral pride, makes him a deeply violent person. But it also turns him into a magnificent hypocrite. How so? In his apparent religiosity, Jonah's attention is absolutely consumed with Nineveh's violence. He wants judgment for the injustices they've committed, and he can't stand even the thought that they might receive mercy from God. Jonah is laser-focused on Nineveh's violence. But he is perfectly willing to overlook the violence in his own backyard. You see, Israel was guilty of the very same injustices as Nineveh. Throughout Israel's history, the prophets call Israel to repent of what? Repent of your idol worship, your social injustice, your innocent bloodshed, your militaristic ambition. Repent even of child sacrifice to pagan gods. Israel is exactly like Nineveh. With one major exception, the Ninevites actually repented 
We heard God's words in Jeremiah 18 earlier, but I want us to hear the larger passage because it's actually an accusation that's aimed straight at Israel's refusal to repent. Here's what Jeremiah says, what God says through his prophet. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Those are the words of God's people when they receive the warning of the Lord. In the book of Jonah, Nineveh, in all its violence, is a mirror in which Israel ought to see her own violent reflection. And Nineveh's subsequent repentance is an indictment against Israel's own refusal to turn to the Lord, but Jonah is not worried about Israel's violence, is he? He's not worried about it one bit. Jonah wants his enemies in Nineveh judged so that they aren't a threat to Israel's prosperity. But he's perfectly happy for God to show mercy at home and keep on blessing Israel. Jonah may sound in his prophetic utterance, like he's committed to justice, but he's actually just a hypocrite. Why? Because even though he'll rail against the injustice of his enemies, he's willing to turn a blind eye to the injustice of his friends. And that's one of the subtle ways that idolatry makes us participants in the violence of the world. When you root your identity, your meaning, your life in some idol, even a respectable idol like moral goodness or religious performance, you'll be a crusader against the wrongdoing of your opponents. But you'll be tempted to overlook the injustices committed by people like you, the people who share your ultimate commitment, the people who you think are on your side. Why? Because you have to keep convincing yourself that you're one of the good guys. You can't afford to tell the truth about the violence and injustice in your own camp. Because that painful truth would threaten the very identity you have fought so hard to create. Friends... That's why Democrats and Republicans get on their TV interviews and they point the finger and wag at one another's injustices. But inevitably, what do they do? They make excuses or simply change the subject when it comes to the violence that's perpetrated by people in their own party. That is why they do it. That's why both sides of a military conflict will condemn one another with statements and declarations for their war crimes, but they'll deflect and they're rationalized about the atrocities that their own soldiers have committed. Why? Because our idols not only propel us to violence in order to protect them, they also propel us to overlook and justify that violence so that we can keep on believing that we're one of the good guys. 
One way to discover what you're really living for, what you're really worshiping, is to ask yourself the twin questions. Whose violence am I so quick to condemn? And whose violence am I so ready to ignore? Who do I want to be held accountable? Who will I make excuses for? That's a question that can expose our hearts. And friends, let me tell you that if you want to be a credible witness to the peace of Jesus's kingdom in the world, you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth about the injustice and violence all around us. We have to be willing to call a spade a spade and to say violence is violence and injustice is injustice, no matter whether it's out there or in here. That's the only way we will be trustworthy and credible as witnesses when we speak about the violence of the world. But how, how can Jonah be such a violent hypocrite? How can he do it? How, how can someone who knows God the way that he does, he's a prophet for crying out loud. How can someone who knows God still nurture a violent heart and overlook his own people's injustice? Friends, even though Jonah knows God, he still has not internalized the depths of God's grace toward him. Chapter 3 begins by reminding us of God's grace to Jonah. Here's what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Jonah had disobeyed God. Jonah had dishonored God. Jonah had made a mockery of God. Jonah had run from God, driven by the violence in his heart, and yet God showed him mercy. He spared him from the storm, preserved him miraculously for three days in the belly of the fish, and brought him back to the land of the living, and spoke to him a second time. If Jonah had truly internalized the depths of God's grace toward him, what would have happened? Instead of nurturing his pride, he would have been humbled by the reality of his sin. Instead of yearning for judgment, he would have delighted in the idea of God's mercy towards undeserving people just like him. Instead of overlooking Israel's injustice, he would have been able to tell the truth about the wickedness of his own people too in the security of an identity that he'd received by the grace of God, not manufactured by his own power. And if you belong to Jesus, you have all of those resources too. Jesus didn't go into a fish for three days. He went into death. He went into the grave for three days, and God raised him up like Jonah and restored him to the land of the living. And if you belong to Jesus, then you are united to Jesus. His story is your story. His descent to death was the death that you deserved. And his third day resurrection is your imperishable life. In Jesus, you have already walked the exact same road of mercy that Jonah did. You have gone down into the grave and you have been brought back up into the land of the living. You've been swept up in the grace of God. And if you internalize the depths of that grace, if you let the reality of God's undeserved love sink all the way into your soul, 
It'll unwind the pride at the root of your violent heart. It'll stir your longing for mercy for undeserving people like you. It'll empower you to tell the truth about yourself and your friends and your community because your life no longer depends upon protecting some manufactured identity. Friend, you don't have to prop up the illusion of your goodness with lies when everything you are is a gift of grace in the first place. You can tell the truth. Church, you are safe and secure in the grace of God. And that reality can, that reality must, overthrow your violence and make you an agent of peace and a witness of love as you walk with Jesus and as you run into the extended arms of his mercy. Let's pray.